right, guys, welcome back to the Gospel of Matthew. You know, we are getting ready to literally explore through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now think about this. The Synoptic Gospels, it means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all look at stories that Jesus is involved with, but from a different angle. And what we're going to look at over the next couple of months with the Gospels is different perspectives of who Jesus Christ is. Now in Matthew, you're going to see Jesus as, as what many painted here as king. When we get into Mark, you're going to get the perspective of, of a servant. To me, my prayer is as you go through the Gospels, even if you've read these a hundred times, that God would just keep giving you little golden nuggets like, hey, yeah, this is... This points to Christ. And so, you know, up to, up to Matthew chapter 6, really you have Jesus beginning to unfold his ministry. We're obviously in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which I didn't even really get to yesterday. Uh, but in Matthew 5, you have the Sermon on the Mount, you have the Beatitudes and all these great components talking about, I didn't come to destroy, but I came to fulfill. And then in Matthew 6, where we're at today, we're going to attempt to go through more than one verse. Okay, that's our desire. In verses 1 through 4, you're going to see a description of Jesus talking to those that are listening, disciples included, like talking about giving. Like, hey, guys, don't do this. Don't give to people so that people notice who you are. And then he says, oh, by the way, in verses 5 through 15, he does the same thing about praying. By the way, don't pray so that people think, oh, that guy can pray. Or, oh, look, that guy's praying. Like, these are not for things to be seen. And then in verse uh, 9 through 13, it is the famous, the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us actually how to pray. And then verses 14 and 15, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, he's walking through practical ways to live a godly life. In verses 14 through 15, all of this is essential based on forgiveness. I mean, let's just state this. If there's a remote chance that you haven't forgiven somebody, bitterness will begin to creep in. Now, as this continues to grow in verse 16, he then even gets into fasting. Now, the next that we're going to cover, and this is where we're going to camp out today, is in verses 19 through 34. We're going to talk about materialism. We're going to talk about wealth, okay? And we're going to talk about how do we manage wealth in a way that gets us through everyday life. Now, you know, I love when teachers and preachers communicate the word about giving, about uh, finances, about money. And we're going to get to that today, and we're going to talk ultimately what the key to all of this is. And I'm just going to make the disclaimer now. There are parts of this that I have to work on in my own life. So don't hear me say as I'm teaching this to you, like, oh yeah, Kyle's got all this figured out. That's actually not the case because I need to hear this as well in my life. Warren Wearsby, one of the commentators, he, he begins to break down 19 through 34, is that materialism, okay, uh, this is kind of a really simple materialism. When I say materialism, Rich, what do you, what do you think of? I think of just material possessions. Materialism could be wealth. It could be money. It could be property. We're talking about this mammon component, okay? So this materialism is that first thing he says is this, is that materialism is, it can be an enslave to the heart. It can enslave the heart. In verses 19, right, through 21. Now, 19 through 21, watch this as it begins to unfold. Now, when I talk about money, okay, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, I think right away people begin to say, well, uh, you know, that means money's completely bad. That's not what we're saying at all. I think sometimes when you read this, you could be like, oh, Jesus is like, give everything up. Don't, don't, don't collect any money at all. Just a couple things. Money is, is, is not evil. In fact, can you go to Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, okay? So first of all, I just want to make sure everybody understands, money is not evil. 
So go to the ant, you slackered, observe its ways and become wise. So live like an ant without leader, administrator or ruler. Verse eight, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. You actually need money. You need these things in order to walk through uh, everyday stuff. That makes sense. You need the finances. So don't view it as uh, of evil. You know what else I like about money? It helps you take care of family. So, Kevin, if you can go to First Timothy 5, 8. And what you're going to see is it helps you take care of your family. First Timothy 5, 8. Now, if anybody does not provide for its own relatives and especially for his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So money actually is essential to help provide for relatives. Now, Kevin, I got to ask, it doesn't qualify what your relatives, who your relatives are. Like it could mean you have to take care of your sister-in-law. It could mean you have to take care of your father-in-law, Rich. It could mean that you take care of, you know, you know, your brother in New York. It could mean that I take care of my, you know, my brother-in-law in Georgia. It could mean, you get the point is that this finances, like when we think for relatives, I think we think, oh, I only wanted to use it for these people, right? And now it does say, and especially for his household. But the point is, is that money is used to take care of our family. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. amen. Now money is, you can also, can I just say, you should enjoy it. Like it's not a bad thing. Go to 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. That's hang out in verse 4. For everything created by God is good. And nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I, mean, I think that's a great example of, uh, of how we live in life. If you perceive this as money is good, and then you praise the Lord and you thank Him for it, like then you don't abuse it. Now, I will flip it, and I will tell you, though, that money, it can be bad. Okay, So I'm giving you a couple of the, of the, of the pictures. It's kind of like yesterday when we were talking about the law. It's temporary and it's eternal. I want to give you both sides of the, of the money situation. Okay, Can you go to Proverbs 13, 22? A good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. And so you actually, money can be left as an inheritance. Watch this. You should have so much money saved up, not just for your kids, but for your grandkids. You know, I wouldn't say I, it's not that I'm trying, not trying to live like that. It just means some of you might not have the means to get to that point, but this should always be your goal is that when my daughter, Maya, Lord willing, has kids, I should want I should want to be able to bless them with an inheritance. So money is actually a good thing, even in the area of savings. And then second Corinthians 12, verse 14, second Corinthians 12, verse 14, just one more emphasis on money being good. And I'll uh, for, uh, I'll draw this up here. OK, now I'm ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you for I'm not seeking what is yours, but you for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I shouldn't expect Jude to have to pay for my basement. (laughs) Not a bad idea. I don't even have a basement or do I is the question. Anyway, uh, the point is this, (laughs) just going to keep feeding into this thing. You know, the best part of this is that we should have... (laughs) Like our parents, me, should be able to pay for my kids. That, you know, I, we know some, some hard stories when kids have to take care of their parents. And I'm talking because the parents are irresponsible. They're not handling their money well. And so money can be a good thing when you bless your children. Not only your children, but also your grandchildren. Now, how can money be bad? Okay, James 5, verse 2. James 5, verse 2. So now remember, this is the context we're talking about. Don't collect up for yourselves treasures, right, on earth. James 5, 2 says, your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten, verse 3. 
Your silver and your gold are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and, and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Verse four. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out. In other words, you're a cheapskate. And the outcry of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the host because you withheld of the money because you thought it was for you. Watch verse five. You have lived luxury on the land, luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of the slaughter. The Lord knows that you have shortchanged people. The Lord knows you're selfish with your money. When you get to that point, you guys, that's when money becomes an issue. Now, we'll begin to keep talking through these things. But if you would, can you go to 1 Timothy 6.10? And I think this is uh, what most of us know as of, these, of this text. The reason money can be bad is it's for the love of money. Now, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It means that you're beginning, and I think this is the key here, with your enslaving your heart, you become to have, you, you have a divided heart. All of a sudden, you're like, do I want this? Do I want material? Do I want wealth? Or do I want my walk with the Lord? And you can say, well, can you do both? No, not if you have the love of money. The love of money becomes the root of all kinds of evil. And so all we're just trying to say is, is that materialism can enslave, as Wearsby says, your heart when you live in this camp of the bad side, not the good side. There's the little tension that we're talking about. So you don't want to store up things, okay, you guys, so that, you know, I, it's a crazy thing. You can never take things with you when you die. So you might as well bless your children. You might as well bless your grandchildren. And you might as well be generous and keep giving it away because, folks, that's what he asks of us. Now, if you want to flip this, now go to verse 20. So if you're not supposed to collect up finances for yourself on here on earth, like if you're not supposed to build massive amounts of wealth, but you're supposed to, what are you supposed to do? Collect for yourselves treasures in heaven. So your focus must be heavenly minded. Your focus must be the kingdom of heaven. Your focus must be on the King Jesus. How can I bless King Jesus? How can I put deposits in that kingdom rather than the earthly kingdom? Because in the earthly kingdom, we know that moth or rust is going to destroy. But in the kingdom of heaven, moth or rust don't destroy these things. And thieves can't break in and they cannot steal. So what does this mean to collect yourselves, collect for yourselves treasures in heaven? Like to me, it's not like you're storing money up in a bank and then you're like, hey, I'm going to take this. So to me, I love what Nelson says. You're going to do a concentration of efforts. Okay, ready for this? Where you will begin to reveal real treasure. Now, hang in here for me. I, I, to me, this was really new for me. I began, what you're seeing here is that you're beginning to see rewards, okay, for faithful service. The way you collect yourselves in the tre for treasures in heaven is that you're actually doing faithful work that then deposits rewards in heaven. 1 Peter 1, verse 14, if you'll go there, Kevin. It's the currency that's deposited in heaven. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Do not go back to the things that we just talked about. Don't go back to the things that are going to be destroyed. Go to the things that are going to be stored up. And so in Matthew 5, 12, Kevin, if you'll go there, we're going to go through a bunch of verses talking about how do you store up these rewards? Well, first of all, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. I, I think that's just a cool, simple phrase. Just be glad and rejoice. Your reward is great in heaven because when they persecute you, guess what? Your reward just continues to get deposited in heaven. So by persecution, you actually get a reward, which means in the Sermon on the Mount, 
I get to go there just a little bit. When you walk out this poor of humility, this, this poor in spirit mentality, eventually you get to the point where you're okay with people saying false things against you. And when you get to that point, you're making a deposit in the heavenly bank. If you also go to Matthew 6, verse 6. Again, there's multiple illustrations in the Gospels all throughout Matthew that talk about this reward mentality. But when you pray, okay, look at this. Go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who's in secret. And then this is how you get a heavenly deposit. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is what we're talking about. These things, you, it can't be taken away. So when you actually get on your knees, you go into a prayer closet. You know, uh, I love this is that when you go to visit my parents' house, my mom, just like that, what's that movie? I can't remember, the, the war room. My mom has a, a prayer room I love, and the only reason I see it is because I stay there. It's not like she shows us. But I believe the Lord will constantly be rewarding, rewarding my mom because she's constantly in prayer about many things. So how do you make a deposit in the heavenly bank? Pray. And pray in such a way that nobody even knows you're praying. Matthew 6, verse 15 uh, this is cool. If you don't forgive people, your father will not forgive your wrongdoing. I just want to say this. I actually think when there's a spirit of forgiveness, then the Lord forgives you. And then there's the rewards. But it's like he can't receive those rewards if, if there's a lack of forgiveness. Just a simple image. Go to Matthew 10, verse 42, if you would, please. Matthew 10, verse 42. All I'm trying to say is, is that where do you want to invest your time? Things that will last, heavenly rewards, or things that won't? I mean, look at this one. And whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's a disciple. Hey, will you, will you go get a cup of water to this little kid? I assure you, he'll never re- lose his reward. Like, I think we want the names on the buildings. I think we want the recognition. I think those are the rewards that we think. And I, I want to pour my money into this, this, and this. The reality is, is that it's when you do things that nobody notices, that's when you get the heavenly deposit. That's when you get the heavenly reward. To me... The only way you have that focus is if your eyes are on King Jesus. If your eyes are on King Jesus and you're serving him, it doesn't matter what you do. But you got to be careful. I'm going to go back to the board here. You got to be careful about this materialism. Don't let it enslave your heart. All right, let's keep going here in verse 21 because it says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love this, what one commentator, T. Sorg, says, The heart is a center of the personality, and it controls the intellect, emotions, and will. All right, the second component, materialism. Okay? What you're going to see here is I got to be careful not to enslave the mind. Okay, so you have, first of all, enslaving the heart, and now you have enslaving the mind, Wearsby says, And that's going to go through verses 22 through 23. There the, excuse me, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. I mean, that sounds kind of obvious, but in verse 23, it says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? couple images here, and I think this one helps me understand this more than anything. Nelson said this in a quote, No muscle of your body can relax if your eye is uncomfortable. So like, this is kind of, an, if, you're, if there's something, if you have something in your eye, <laughs> 
and it's just annoying you. Or, you know, maybe you have a contact just as a practical illustration and you're like, ah, it's so dry. What do I do? Or you got a little speck in here and you're constantly like, like you cannot focus. It's, it's just annoying, right? I think that's the same image. If your eye is bad, it impacts everything. If you let a remote lens of darkness begin to creep in, guess what happens? Earthly religion, as Wearsby says, begins to leave one's heart as dark. If you begin to allow darkness, these temptations that Jesus had to overcome, physical appetite, power, you know, is he to walk through these different components? If he let those creep in, that's when the body becomes dark. But if you protect the eye, if you protect who you are in Christ, dare I say, your whole body is full of light. And just over the course of time, if you don't understand this, I think this is really important. The eye is very similar to the heart in Scripture. Kevin, if you would, would you go to Psalm 119, verse 10. I've sought you with all of my heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. Okay, let's go to one more. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may contemplate wonderful things from your instruction. And then in verse 148. How about that one for you? Psalm 119, verse 148. (laughs) I awake through each watch of the night to meditate on your promise. What you put in your eyes actually goes to your heart. What your heart is in your heart is what you're going to see. And I believe that when you enslave your mind with either good or bad, it's how you then begin to walk out your life. I know it sounds really simple, really obvious, but I think sometimes we, we let these things build over the course of time. And then we're not even, we don't even know what happened, how we've become a slave to our own sin. Okay, number three, and the last thing in regards to the materialism component in verse 24. In materialism, what you have is it can also be an enslave to the will. Verse 24, no one can be a slave of two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. You know, earthly material treasures become uh, what the scriptures say, idols or gods of the human heart. And then they begin to conflict, as MacArthur says, with your worshiping the one true God. You all of a sudden become so driven about your money component that you forget about actually kingdom-minded. There's nothing better than when I hear business guys say I'm kingdom minded in what I do. To me, when I hear I'm kingdom minded, it means that whatever I'm going to earn, whatever I'm going to make, it's going to go to advancing the kingdom of God. It's going to bring glory for the kingdom of God rather than, hey, how can I keep filling my pockets? He's saying, no, no, I want the rewards that God's going to give me in heaven because I'm kingdom minded in everything that I do. But if you're not careful, you will become a slave to the money. I love what one one commentator says, a single uh, like slavery mentality. I don't know how else to put this. You become full-time service of the essential of slavery. Like if you become so focused about money and you have to keep up with the Joneses or keep up with your bills, you become a slave to everything in order to keep making it happen. And that lifestyle is exhausting. And that becomes, you become enslaved. You're either going to go after the visions or you're going to have to go to the treasures. You're going to have to go the will of God or the will of man. And you become enslaved like, oh no, what is my decision today? It reminds me of God telling the Israelites as they're going in the prophecy possess the land don't follow any other gods Mm. because they're going to take you down wrong paths so it's the same thing with money here it's going to take you down the wrong path totally and and in fact i think what's going to happen is is and kevin's a good transition so as you go into the promised land as you go up and you wake up every day in verse 25 it says this is why i tell you okay don't be enslaved to the heart the mind and the will don't worry about your life 
what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Here's what I hear in this. And I love what Nelson's commentary says. When you begin to worry about your drink or you begin to worry about your body, you're like, what am I going to wear? You know, this is the craziest, you guys. Somebody dropped a bag of clothes off at our house yesterday and we have no idea who dropped it off. We texted multiple family members or multiple friends in the community that normal would drop off something for our kids or for Laura. Nobody. Don't worry. God knows what's on your heart. God knows what you need to wear. God knows what you need. And isn't life more than food in the body, more than clothing? But what I love what Nelson said is that when you do the opposite of worry, uh, in other words, you begin to give this over to the Lord, you begin to walk by faith. You actually begin to walk with carefulness. You begin to walk with cautiousness in knowing that God's going to show up. But when you don't do those things, you're not trusting the Lord. That's really all this comes down to. And so when you think of materialism, when you become enslaved to the, to the materialism, you're saying, I got to do this because God can't. And that's not a kingdom mindset. That's not keeping King Jesus on the forefront. And to me, that's a constant struggle because look in verse 26, look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in barns. And it doesn't mean that they're lazy either. So that's not the issue. They're not idle. But yet, even despite those, those birds, he says, yeah, your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you more worth than they? Verse 27, can any of you add life? <laughs> can any of you add a single cubit to his height by, by worrying? God provides, especially for his believers. He's not going to put you out to the curb. Verse 28, so then why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. The lilies, you know, these wild crocuses that bloom in the, in the galley in the spring. Like, learn how they grow and they don't labor or spin thread. In verse 29, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. So Solomon, how incredible he was, he didn't even match to the, to the lilies. Now, 2 Chronicles 9, verse 22, I just want to paint a picture Actually, Kevin, go to 2 Chronicles 9, verse 3. There's multiple illustrations in 2 Chronicles 9. 2 Chronicles 9, verse 3, that describes Solomon. Now, Queen of Sheba, she observed Solomon's window. She came to visit him, the palace he had built. Look how the description of Solomon. The food at his table, his servant's residence, his attendant's service in their attire, his cupbearers in their attire, and the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's temple. Oh, by the way, all of us, it took away Queen Sheba's breath. This right here, though, going back to Matthew 6, verse 29, this right here that we just read, it doesn't even compare to the splendor of the lilies. And in verse 30, if that's how God clothed the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So I'm writing this for myself. And I think this is interesting. I, I actually believe I have the gift of faith, but I also believe that Satan goes after your strengths. And I believe he attacks those different gifts. Worry is the opposite of faith. Kyle has a choice every single day. You want to know what it is? Do I want to focus on the materialism and think that I can do it? And that's the reality. You know that, right? And not trusting him. Or do I want to have faith and believe that God's going to do this? 
That's the tension that I have to walk out every day. And it, this is that important that in the heart of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus communicates this to all of the disciples. Do you trust me that I'm going to provide for you? If you don't, if you begin to play this game, the, the little of faith game, right? And how many times do the disciples, I mean, think about this in Matthew 8, 26. Over and over, does not Jesus always say to them, you have little faith? Think about this, Matthew 8, 26. You have a couple illustrations in the Gospels. But he said to them, why are you fearful? You have little faith, right? What was he doing? He was sleeping. Jesus was chilling out on a boat and they wake him up. Hey, Jesus, Jesus, come on. He says, why are you fearful? You, you of little faith. Then he got up, he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And then I, <laughs> he probably went and cashed out again. You of little faith. Do you not know I am right here with you? So in verse 31, don't worry. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink or what will we wear? You know what that is? Scripture says that's a bad testimony. When you begin to say, I don't know where this is going to come from. It is a bad testimony. Constable says this. Not only is it foolish to talk like this, but it's pagan to fret about basic necessities of life. You begin to live the life of the of the Israelites in Egypt. And in fact, in verse 32, you go so extreme. He says, for the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. And so if you go back to saying, God can't do this, this is you. You become the idolater. I become the idolater. And Constable says you begin to live as an unbeliever who disbelieves and disregards God's provision. And so the reason I felt like we, I wanted to camp out of this part of Matthew 6, because the only way to overcome the materialism in your life, the only way to overcome worry in your life is pretty obvious. You have to go to Matthew 6, 33. Scripture says, okay, this is what you need to do, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when you do this, all these things will be provided for you. You will no longer live with anxiety. You no longer will live with worry. You'll no longer, ready for this, live in disbelief or distrust or disregard of of the almighty king. You'll actually begin to seek him and say, God, I know you can do this. I know you can provide amidst all of this. And so the tension that I have to walk through, that you have to walk through, is do I want to function by faith? Or do I want, do I want to function by, by worry and anxiety? And so when I think and I hear the words, seeking first his kingdom, I'm just putting Jesus as my priority. I'm putting the way of life as my priority. Because the scripture says in verse 34, don't worry, therefore don't worry about tomorrow. If you're focusing on King Jesus, you don't have anything to worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I love what Wearsby said this. An average person is constantly crucifying himself between two thieves and the regrets of yesterday and the worries about tomorrow. The thieves are constantly getting you in a position of the regrets of yesterday and the worries about tomorrow. And then you forget about seeking the kingdom today. We cannot put our, ourselves in this, in this posture. And I love what one guy said is that God has given us enough grace for one day. I wrestled with that. No, I need it for tomorrow. No, you don't. That's because you're worrying about tomorrow. God gives us enough grace for today. And so how do you, how do you overcome worry? I think it's very simple. One is, is you have to have faith. In Matthew 6, verse 30, you trust God to meet our needs. Wearsby also says this, how do you overcome worry? You trust the Father. 
Not only trust the faith, the faith, you have to have faith in the Father, but you have to know that the Father, in Matthew 6, 32, you have to know that He's going to care for the children. The Father will care for His children. And then finally, you know how you overcome worry? You have to have faith, you have to trust the Father, and then you have to have a priority first. This is cool to me. First, you must seek His kingdom. You have to put your priority, God's will, first in our lives so that He can be glorified. How do you overcome worry? Faith, Father, and first. This is cool. Wearsby summarizes it this way. If we have faith in the Father and we put Him first, He'll meet our needs every day. And I really believe that. And I really believe all of this, you have to have the mentality of King Jesus is your focus. All right, guys, that's Matthew 6. Lord bless you all. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.